Well, good morning, Defender Nation. This is always our favorite way to start Defender Days. We gather grandparents and parents and friends and siblings and alumni and talk about the difference between being a Dort Defender and being a disciple on the offensive against the kingdom of darkness. We get to do that as we gather and worship, and we're going to talk about all the ways that happens on campus in the next couple of days, and we are thrilled that you are here. Will you join me in prayer? Father, we just sang about how it is that you make the darkness tremble. And we confess this morning that when we think about that, we want to think about the darkness that we want to change outside of ourselves. We want the darkness inside of us to tremble. In fact, we want it to flee. Because of your presence. We want the old person to die. And we want to be raised in your work and in the work of your spirit. Fathers, we come back before your words. We take time at the start of this weekend to put you in your rightful place. To give you glory to ascribe you worth, to humble ourselves, to say before you speak. And for whom else would we turn? To what other voice in this world shall we listen? You alone hold the words of eternal life. Amen. So this year in chapel, we've been looking through this series of questions in a booklet written by a Dort alumnus, Sam Gutierrez. And in the Jesus questions, it's the 20 questions that have been extrapolated from the different Gospels where Jesus is cutting to the heart in various conversations with individuals or with groups of people, hard questions. There's beautiful reminders in this for all of us that it's questions that lead to learning. That our God isn't afraid not only of our questions to him, but even of being able to have his questions posed back to us. On September 25, we had Sam come back, and he led chapel here and led us through a, one of the questions in the book. But the night before, he did a training on September 24 with our small group leaders in the commons, and I was there. And he did this activity with us where he had cut up all these questions into little pieces of paper, and he asked us to pray a prayer after which we would reach our hand in and grab one out, asking God, will you give me the question that you want to ask me personally today? So we went through this activity, and I prayed over that piece of paper before I opened it as it laid on my desk in front of me. I've had it in my wallet ever since then. And the question when I unraveled it was from the Gospel of Luke 24, 38, why are you troubled? Well, it just so happens to be our text for this morning. Why are you troubled? This question has been rolling around in my head and sitting in my wallet for the last few weeks. And I'm carrying this around, but at the same time, I also know that I'm not the only one carrying trouble. Where do you feel anxious? Where do you feel troubled? Where are your fears? What keeps you awake at night? What keeps you silent in a room full of people? What keeps you hiding from God? 
Why are you troubled? You see, this isn't just my problem. This is a collective growing problem all over the place. By age 18, experts are telling us one in three, one in three incoming college students across the nation, across all demographics, will already have an anxiety disorder. What I want to talk to you about this morning isn't like the actually chemically diagnosable, physiological, medical problems of anxiety, but rather our generalized anxiety. Do you know that in the last decade, hospital admissions for suicide among teens have doubled? We are troubled more than ever before. Why are we so anxious? Why are we so troubled? Where are all of our fears lying? Higher ed research has been working since the 80s, asking incoming freshmen across schools across the country, do you feel overwhelmed by what you're going through? In the mid-80s, 18% of freshmen across the United States said that they felt overwhelmed, that life was too much for them to handle. Now, I know anybody in this room beyond college years is thinking to themselves, oh, you ain't seen nothing yet. (laughs) But somehow between 1985 and today, it's nearly 50% of all freshmen across this country say that they feel overwhelmed almost to the breaking point. Our anxiety is rising, and it's getting worse. So why are we so troubled? Why are we so afraid? I want to give you a couple of ideas from a book I'm reading right now called um, Reappearing Church by what I think is one of the most important voices in the world today, um, Mark Sayers. And he talks about some of the drivers of anxiety and some of the reasons why this is happening culturally right now. And one of them he talks about is simply the death of expertise. That over the last period of time, within this last generation, we watched that we can't trust Wall Street and we saw the recession and our financial leaders led us down a road that was unsustainable. And then we've seen moral failures in our political leaders and our cultural leaders. The rise of the Me Too movement. And then we realized that the church wasn't immune, and the Church Too movement revealed that leaders struggle and have dark, secret places in their lives where they have used power to even hurt people. And all of this, he says, is accumulated to the point where we have an inherent distrust of leadership, and so we don't trust anybody just because they have letters behind their name or just because they have certain credentials or reside in a particular office, and some of that's good, but it's also brought us to the point where if we can't trust anybody else outside of us and even in people in positions of authority, then there's a rising anxiety inside of us because then we become the final arbiters, and you can't trust, and our notions of covenant and community are dissolving as our trust for others dissolves. This, of course, is wrapped closely into a sense of hyper-individualism. Sayers puts it like this, The Western life system has formed us in a particular way that creates people who resist the move of God in subconscious ways. The average Westerner is a radical individualist who is deeply afraid of compromising their faith. No. Of compromising their autonomy. That's what we're afraid of? He or she determines their self-worth and identity primarily horizontally via the media, culture, or peers. 
We are shaped by the passive-aggressive tone of consumerism where we want maximum say with minimum responsibility. We are shaped primarily by fluid and ever-changing feelings. We yearn for community and connection, yet fear commitment and consistency. We wish for justice while desiring hedonistic payoffs. And all the while, we religiously point the finger at others while jealously guarding our own right to do as we please. And all of these factors place us in a spiritually precarious place. See, fear has this compounding problem, and trouble has this compounding problem, is that the more of it we have in life, the very thing that we need to reach out to others and to shoulder those burdens more broadly is the actual opposite of what we reach for. We reach for our own strength, and the more overwhelmed we feel, the more we withdraw from everybody else. And it could be that the prescription we're giving ourselves might actually be making the sickness worse. What we need is to re-enter into the community that God has desired for us from the beginning. It is not good for man to be alone. That was said before there was sin in the world. We were made for one another and to share burdens and to be a people together, to be the people of God walking and sharing each other's burdens. And our hyper-individualism is robbing it from us. Lastly, the perfect storm kind of culminates for us in what Sayers refers to as a digital nervous system. You call it your cell phone. He says we've traded our, our actual central nervous system for a digital nervous system. And he tells the story that on a flight one time from Australia to Vancouver, they landed in Hawaii in a layover, and sitting inside the bathroom stall, there was an earthquake, and the doors shook. And he realized, like, I'm in the middle of an earthquake right now. But then he hopped on his plane and flew to Vancouver, and by then, social media had blown up, talking all about this dramatic event, and he realized, as he took the temperature of his own anxiety in that moment, that he was more anxious experiencing this through his phone than he was actually being in the earthquake itself. I can't believe how much lower my blood pressure is on days where I don't check the news feed. Now, I'm not saying disengage from the world. I'm just saying we might be engaging it wrong. See, I first thought I needed to regulate my own children's access to social media and the internet and blue light and digital screens because of the content that was there. But maybe it's not even just about the content. Maybe it's actually the medium itself. Maybe when Marshall McLuhan in 1964 said the medium is the message, he was more prophetic than he ever realized. Maybe it's actually these things that are changing and driving our overall mental health. Maybe the things that we thought were bringing us freedom were actually just simply delivering us into a freedom from God. One that we never intended, but have ended up in. So what happens in this space when we become troubled? Because Jesus asks the question in such a way that it insinuates it shouldn't be there. Why are you troubled? Like, you shouldn't be. And yet we stand in a moment right now where Pew Research tells us that there are more Americans who think that our best days are actually behind us than they are in front of us. That we've passed some sort of golden era and you realize how crazy that sounds, right? 
when we become more afraid of those who can split atoms than hands that have been pierced. When we become more terrorized by news headlines than by the one who founded creation. You see, I don't think we have a trouble problem. We have a problem of not living into the reality of the resurrection as fully as we ought. As we go through this and deal with these questions, we realize here too Jesus is just asking us and to deal with the realities that we need to deal with, not the ones we want to deal with. The questions that we really ought to be experiencing and wrestling through. There's so much distraction for us in a world of infobesity, just absolutely overwhelmed by info. And when we need to be driven by an identity formed from above rather than from the voices around, the very thing we need the most is what we seek the least. Next week, we're going to start a new series um, looking at grace and truth, five conversations every thoughtful Christian should have about faith, sexuality, and gender. You see, because that's, again, one of the great troubling things of our time, where we're going to spend five weeks walking through that together and talking about contemporary conversations around sexuality and why the church is so afraid and why it's troubled. But let's get back to this one. Why are you troubled? I read the passage this comes from. On the other side of the resurrection, on the road to Emmaus. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, and their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb. And they found it just as the woman had said. But they did not see Jesus. And he said to them, how foolish you are. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. But as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going to go further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. For it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. 
Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Then they got up at once and returned to Jerusalem. Okay, so just quick pause there for a second. The story starts off telling us they went on a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They insist to Jesus he shouldn't go any further because it's nighttime, it's getting dark, and darkness is a dangerous time to travel in a world without light where thieves and bandits await. So they convince him to stay, but now in this moment, they're so shooken up, they're willing to run seven miles, dropping their supper all the way back to Jerusalem because they're so disturbed by what has just happened. I don't know when the last time you went for a seven-mile run spur of the moment was. It's been a long while for me. But they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem, and there they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And of course, they experienced anything other than peace. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? So here's the question. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Why are you troubled? A question that implies they shouldn't have been. And they shouldn't have been because the realities of the resurrection have yet to set all the way into them. The resurrection is, was uh, not even a, a hope in their minds. It wasn't in the framework of possibilities. So as they walk beside Jesus, he is present in the moment, but they can't see the moment for what it is because they don't even know how to hope properly. You see, I think the world is troubled today because it doesn't know how to hope properly. It's not living in the reality of a resurrection of Jesus. And so no wonder our troubles dictate our decisions. No wonder anxiety rules the day. The same way the disciples walked and were downcast and were fearful and were disappointed and felt like their hopes had been dashed. If you do not have the hope of Jesus, what hope do you have in this world? Without a resurrection as the center of all things, as the fulfillment of all promises, what else is there to stand on? 
You know, in the Gospel of Luke, when Jesus first begins his ministry, he opens the scroll of Isaiah, and what does he say? This has been fulfilled in your hearing. Scripture has been fulfilled, and then he keeps saying it throughout the Gospel. We're at the end of the story, and it's still trying to settle the truths of Scripture into his people. You see, you and I, I think, don't have a trouble problem. It's not that the troubles of the world around us are bigger than they've ever been before or more surmounting. I think the problem is, is we're not living enough out of the reality of the resurrection. And not in a way that makes troubles disappear. Not in an overly triumphalistic or, or health and wealth, prosperity, gospel kind of way. But rather, what Jesus wanted for his followers was that regardless of their circumstances, the reality of the resurrection would allow them to transcend when everybody else believed that the world had its hair on fire. And even when the world engages in self-immolation, that it's Christians who are able to be the cultural first responders and run into those moments and offer the peace that Jesus offers, and the justice that he demands. And the truth that he proclaims. You see, things are not as they seem. That's the thing about the trouble and anxiety in the world, is it is a lie against the backdrop of the resurrection. It's just one that too many are believing. Maybe you and me. They were kept from recognizing him. They were kept from recognizing the reality of what it was that was in their midst. What keeps us from realizing it? See, it's not just a simple solution where you hear one sermon or read one book and then now it's all different and now I live more fully into these truest truths that have ever been spoken. But this is true. His deliverance can be sure and final even if they couldn't see it. The resurrection had already happened whether they saw it or not. Whether they yet believed it or not. Whether yet they knew it or not, whether they had seen the evidence, put fingers in the holes, regardless of what they had experienced, the resurrection had happened and changed all of history. And I don't know where it is that you experience the most trouble or turmoil or anxiety in your life right now. But this means that his deliverance can be sure and final for us too, even if we can't see it in the moment we're in. Maybe we only see what he wants us to see when he wants us to see it. Maybe Jesus leads the disciples into storms. Maybe his refinement processes are not the same that you or I would have chosen for ourselves. Maybe we're not as in control of our own destinies as we want to believe or tell God he ought to make it. I love this line in the text. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. As a reader, I want to ask myself, what made that happen? Because I would love for that to happen in more of my trouble. Was it when his nail-scarred hands served them the bread at the table? Like, when, when he passed bread and then they saw it. Like, was that the moment? Was it when the inflection of his voice matched the same way it had when he had prayed with them and broke bread in their presence, and something in their memory clicked, and be like, I know who this is. What was it in that moment, or was it just simply an act of grace and of God that pulled the scales back from their eyes that allowed them to see reality differently? 
and their eyes were opened. But it's not the op- only opening that happens in this text. And don't let the significance of this be lost on you. Jesus has just conquered the grave, and the difference between him ascending and everything disappearing in the end of the story, and a church moving forward to change and transform the world, and the instigation of the kingdom of light against the world of darkness that would never be stopped for all of eternity, that would grow and grow and grow even unto today and beyond was not dependent on him arming them now for battle and for war, but merely opening their eyes. Merely opening their eyes. Then he does it again. They run all the way back to Jerusalem, and then now what happens is that he opens their minds. So their eyes are open and their minds are open. These are the turning points inside of this text before the ascension. He opens their minds and their eyes. You know how many times I have prayed this prayer? God, open my mind so that I can understand the scriptures. I may have prayed this prayer more than any other prayer in my entire life. Maybe it's just because I'm a preacher and that would be really helpful on Sundays and Wednesdays, but it seems to be the linchpin that allows them to see the world differently. They're about to enter into a world where they become the foundation of the church in a world of persecution that teaches that treats them as if they are insurrectionists and treasonous and blasphemous. The world thinks that they are anarchists. It will burn them at the stake. It will hang them on crosses upside down. But those don't see the world through the turmoil. They see it through the reality of the resurrection because their eyes are open and their minds are open. Brothers and sisters, pray this prayer with me that God would open our eyes and our minds to see reality for what it really is. His reality Maybe we're more overwhelmed because we're so withdrawn from the ability to move beyond ourselves. Maybe our individualism has closed in our peripheral vision from being able to see the possibilities that God has in mind for his people. That would live so differently if their eyes and their minds were open. Fear should not close us off. Trouble and anxiety should not close us off. That's not the answer. According to Jesus, it's a wider opening. Karen Swallow Pryor was here as our first Monday speaker this week and said this, we cannot desire what we cannot imagine. She talked about the need to read widely and read beautiful literature because when you enter into story and when you enter into aesthetics and appreciate the world of beauty that God has created all around us, it allows us to imagine bigger. Christianity right now in America has an imagination problem, not a trouble problem. She went on to say imagination is actually the bridge between the word and the world. And I actually believe this is what Jesus is talking about at the end of the text when he says, I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. What is that power? It's the Holy Spirit who comes at Pentecost, but what does he do when he comes? He doesn't say, all right, every Christian line up. I'm going to give you the battle armor. I'm going to equip you for warfare. You are going to dominate. I'm going to give you guys wealth beyond your imaginations. I'm going to give you offices of political power. And from the top down, we are going to make this thing happen. When the Holy Spirit shows up to empower God's people in Pentecost, this is where Peter goes. This is how Peter explains the arrival of God's presence in a new way in and among and through his people. He says, you'll see visions and dream dreams. God's answer is a bigger imagination. There are possibilities when we live inside the reality of the resurrection that transcend the troubles of our moment. 
And this is what we've been invited into. So when the disciples are troubled beside Jesus because they've just experienced what they think is the worst thing that could have ever possibly happened, the answer for Jesus and the command that he offered isn't buck up, isn't work harder. All he says is look. It's the command of the text. And maybe for you and me in the middle of our greatest struggles in life, the answer is still just look. Everybody gets so feared when we talk fearful when we talk about things like end times. Everybody's so intimidated by the book of Revelation. This is the greatest single takeaway I've ever had walking through that book was to realize that this word is the one most oft-repeated for people in the midst of persecution, struggle, and turmoil. Over 40 times in the book of Revelation, this is the command to comfort God's people. Look. See, because you've been given eyes of faith and of possibility because of a resurrection. In the world, when the world goes screaming around in circles, yelling and terrorizing with its hair on fire and battling one another. Your answer to it all is different. Not because we are smarter. Not because we got a degree from Dort University. It'll be helpful. <laughs> because you've been given the possibility to see through the resurrection. The single greatest thing that will cause you and I to stand out in this world and in the midst of all of their trouble, that was his answer. Look, maybe you're just not seeing it yet. I want to take you in your mind and in your heart right now into the places that give you anxiety. This is an exercise that I've been doing the last little while in contemplating on this passage. If you need to close your eyes, go ahead and feel free. In the same way we asked Jesus at the beginning to reveal a question to us, I want to ask Spirit of God, reveal to us the places of our anxiety, of our trouble, the relationships, the places in the future we fear, the financial worries that dictate our state and our blood pressure, the state of the world, an angry and vitriolic political climate. A hyper-individualism that has led to entrenchment between us and others. Where do you hurt the most? Spirit of the living God, through the resurrection power of Jesus, we ask that you would open our eyes of faith you would help us to see the realities in which we live, not through the circumstances around us and not just simply through what our physical eyes see, but through the eyes of faith can envision. And just as you promised in Pentecost to enliven the imaginations of your people to see visions and dream dreams, young and old, men and women, slave and master, God, your gifts transcend all of our circumstances. And so it's to you we appeal. Give each and every person in this room, listening in in this moment, a bigger imagination to understand just how incredible your resurrection power is in this world and for us. In Jesus' name.